host Drew Ross, and this is episode number nine, Is Shane Lame? Hello, everyone, and happy Thursday. I have a great topic on deck for y'all today, and shame is going to be the name of the game for episode number nine. So I hope y'all are ready for some more knowledge on how to feel those feelings. Let's jump right in with starting to define what shame is. So shame can be defined as a feeling of embarrassment or humiliation that arises in relation to the perception of having done something dishonorable, immoral, or improper. This definition from online, like it resonates with me, but I want to look at shame in some different ways. So shame comes in many different forms and for person to person, it can affect everyone in a little bit of a different way. That's why I don't necessarily want to go directly at the online web definition. So the ultimate shame dialogue is when you wanted something to go a certain way and it didn't. And as a result of this, you beat yourself up because you think that if you were better, everything would have gone according to plan. So it can sound like, man, I would have gotten that job if I didn't trip over my words when delivering an example on that long-term project. Or if I didn't overshare my wild weekend during the first date, maybe he would have asked me out for a second one. So this is you blaming yourself surrounding shame. And blame can go in one of two ways. It can go inward and it can go outward. So when going inward, it is very much the case that like you're calling yourself out for not being good enough. Like I mentioned above in the situation where you thought things were going to go one way and they ended up going another. So the job interview or the date, those are both prime examples as to it didn't go according to plan. So as a result, inwardly, I'm going to beat myself up about it. And going outward is justifying your actions because your shame has been exposed in some way. And here's an example of like an outward projection. So Halloween is just around the corner, so we can get a little bit festive here. So you're at a Halloween party and you're talking about someone that you may, like maybe you're not so fond of, or maybe you totally are fond of them, but like it really doesn't make a difference. So what you don't know is that that person is also at the party with you, but you can't tell because they're in a Halloween costume. As a result of this, they overhear you talking a little bit of trash on their character. So you utter the words to the person that you're talking to, like, yeah, she was a wreck at that event and was all over the place when she was introducing herself to new people. She, in this case, heard what you said and decided to not be quiet and decided to call you out for it. So after the exchange... After the party and after after the dust had settled from the confrontation, you may enter enter into a form of shame and justify your gossip by saying, "Well, if well, it's true, she's been known to be a mess in her life, and her at that networking event is a prime example of that." So this is you blaming someone or something else for that gossip that you had going on, and you want to be gentle with yourself and others when it comes to blaming around shame in my first episode tell me how you really feel we discussed feeling emotions and the forms of three kinds it was avoidance resistance and reaction to emotions for me shame is an emotion that is so hot and heavy that i can mingle it into any of the above three categories really at any time so this emotion is so strong because if you already have beliefs that you're not good enough or that things go wrong because you just don't know how to do the right things Leave it up to shame 
to only reinforce those beliefs. Also, shame lingers. So it can linger for days or even weeks if it's not felt through properly. So the whole reliving a moment in your head over and over again, time and time again, is a prime example of shame for me. So I could have done something five years ago and it still pops into my head and that's how powerful shame can be. But we don't have to give shame that kind of power. Shame is lame for its long-lasting existence in our minds, but we can also use shame to our benefit. So every time I feel shame, it's so strong that I, I, I feel the need to write it down. And I have a gratitude journal that I write in every day, and it has a little note section where I take note of when I'm feeling shame. And in, interestingly enough, if you do the same thing, you may find that you have the same shame happenstances appearing time and time again. So I want to offer that you just recognize and become aware that there are particular situations or triggers that really do drive your shame. And like by identifying where it stems from, this will help guide the way you deal with and treat your shame. So I tend to experience shame when a supervisor says a great job on this, but you didn't do that. And in the beginning of my career, I would wrestle with these comments for a long time and look at the bad and not the good. Now I look at it, this is like a form of constructive criticism so I can become better. And like, it's just really important because like we must be able to identify shame before we can get to know it better. And I got to know shame better through connections with others. And I want to offer that you might be able to do the exact same thing. So I recently posted a reel that included some of my favorite books that I've read this year. And there's one book that I want to mention that was not in that stack. So we can bring shame to life some more. So the book is called I Thought It Was Just Me and in parentheses, but it isn't by Brene Brown. So Brene Brown is a lecturer. She's a podcast host. She's a researcher, also an American professor who has studied shame a lot including empathy, courage, and vulnerability. She's been doing this for the last 20 years. So she does her research at the University of Houston, only adding to another reason why I connect with her so much, love Houston to death. And I devoured this book, but one chapter in particular really jumped out at me, uh, and that was chapter five. So I read the whole dang thing, but definitely pay particular attention to this part if you do decide to read her book. So. I'm a Brene Brown stan, and you can be too. Um, I'm also experienced in the art of identifying, feeling, and shaping mindsets. So I wanted to speak on some of the examples she provides because she's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to these topics. So some of the biggest takeaways from this book and this chapter include adopting a critical awareness so you can be able to identify shame. And then also finding ways to speak shame in a trusted circle. So speaking on shame, shame all the time really isn't that fun to do, but being vocal about the sentences in your head that tell you you aren't good enough or that you should be better can be powerful. So healing of any form can happen in many ways. What I've found is that healing through connections with others is generally the most powerful. And it's a magical moment when you're speaking on shame. And then somebody responds with the word same. Two things happen here. One, you and the person just got a whole lot closer because you were able to relate on the same page. And two, it's turned into a three-way conversation between you, the trusted individual you're talking to, and empathy. So once you bring empathy into the picture, that is a main 
connection driver between people. And this dialogue can go both ways. So either you're the one speaking shame and sharing your vulnerability, or you're the one capturing a shame story from someone else through listening and attention. So it can be powerful no matter which side of shame you're on. Also, shame conversations can flip halfway through the conversation. So when someone responds with, I totally understand where you're coming from. I'm actually going through the same thing. It then becomes their time to tell their story. So flipping between storytelling and listening can happen often in moments of vulnerability, which is amazing. A line from this chapter reads, one of the most important benefits of reaching out to others is learning that experiences that make us feel the most alone are actually universal experiences. You don't have to go through it alone. Really, that's just a fact. And shame likes to hide and fester and grow and consume your brain. So speaking shame is exposing it to the light. And in the light, shame doesn't grow. It only shrinks. So we can reach out to others during a shame episode um, and share our story and create change. But when we decide to not do this, we separate ourselves and insulate the shame attack we're going through. So. You can experience change individually, but the person that you're telling the shame story with can also experience change. And that's where it's really powerful. There is a particular instance from Brene Brown's book that I want to share because it really does shed light on the fact that like speaking about your reality is better than feeling shame about your reality. So although your current reality might not exactly be someone else's, you may find that there is still overlap in one way or another. So the plot follows two supporting characters, Jennifer and Tiffany. So Jennifer and Tiffany are both married and have kids that are the same age and they go to the same school. And those kids are best friends. Jennifer and Tiffany are also neighbors. Jennifer and Tiffany are also not best friends like their kids. So although their two little boys are besties, Jennifer and Tiffany are having some troubles finding that connection piece to really grow their relationship. So Jennifer has a sister named Carly who was being admitted to a rehab facility for alcoholism. So Jennifer needed Tiffany to watch her son for the night so she could attend like a rehab facility meeting that her whole family was going to. So. She wasn't planning on taking her son with her when she went to this meeting. So she went over to Tiffany's house and asked if it was okay for her son to stay the night. And Tiffany said, sure, but also asked why. Jennifer went right in and told her the details of the rehab facility family weekend. And Tiffany really couldn't wrap her head around the fact that like Jennifer's younger sister was an alcoholic because she had met Carly and said she was so pleasant and put together when they met for the first time. Tiffany asked Jennifer, like, what does your mom think about Carly being an alcoholic? Like, what are her thoughts on all of that? And Jennifer explained that her mother loves her daughter, Carly. And even though Carly's an alcoholic, she goes on to mention that her mother is also a recovering alcoholic. Hence why Carly and her mother connect so much. So the conversation ends there. And to no surprise, this really doesn't bring Jennifer and Tiffany closer together at all. So months later... Jennifer and Tiffany's boys started kindergarten, and there was an incident at the school. So Tiffany came came running over to Jennifer's house to explain what had happened, and at this point, she had already picked her son up and had returned home from the school. 
Um, and the incident happened in the carpool line. So in the carpool line, another mother passed out at the steering wheel because she was drunk. And Tiffany was really irate because of the harm that could have been done, yet wasn't done, to the other kids or parents from this behavior from the mother that was passed out. Tiffany was saying things like, I can't believe this would happen in our neighborhood, like to our kids or at our school and so on. And side note, and this is a point that was brought up by Jennifer, like where are these things supposed to even happen? Because in reality, they can really happen anywhere. So when hearing this story, Jennifer became very emotional but not for the same reasons that Tiffany was emotional. So Jennifer became emotional because she comes from a family of recovering alcoholics, her sister Carly and her mother, to name both of them. Jennifer's heart was torn because she feels like for that mother that was passed out at the wheel, but she also feels for that mother's kids and that mother's family. And she was able to really resonate like with what she was getting, like going through or with that experience. Tiffany then disengages because Jennifer's not agreeing like with her point of view and Tiffany leaves Jennifer's home to go gossip with like the other neighbors about it. Another step in the wrong direction for Jennifer and Tiffany. However, there was another opportunity to, for them to like work alongside each other and it came during a winter carnival that was like hosted by the school. So Tiffany wanted her and Jennifer to join the committee to get to know some of the other school moms, and in particular, a woman named Amber Daniels. So Tiffany really idolized Amber because she appeared to be perfect on the outside. So she saw this as an opportunity for her and Jennifer to get with the in crowd, which would be Amber Daniels and her friends. Jennifer also mentioned that she viewed Amber as perfect, and this is actually one mindset where, like, Jennifer and Tiffany agreed like they both idolized Amber Daniels and saw her as someone who was a little bit untouchable and perfect. After a carnival meeting, uh, Jennifer and Tiffany were exiting to leave and Amber was sitting at a table with her and her squad and they were just having like a little bit of a coffee moment. So Amber caught them on the way out and she actually asked Jennifer and Tiffany to join them. They were both caught off guard, but they decided to join anyways because they decided they had nothing to lose. Um, And being called over by Amber was something that they felt like they needed to agree upon and do. So Amber started the coffee hangout with talks around upcoming holiday plans and sort of opened it up to the table to see what everybody was going to be up to. Jennifer immediately jumped in and said that she was headed upstate to visit her sister in rehab, similar to when she asked Tiffany to let her son spend the night for a family gathering when she visited the same rehab facility months back. She also mentioned that Carly, again, Carly is Jennifer's recovering sister, is a single mother, and that the whole situation between the rehab and then her mom taking care of Carly's daughter has been a little bit difficult. Tiffany's super caught off guard that Jennifer would intro right in with this holiday plan, especially in the presence of Amber and Tiffany admittedly like outright said, like, I doubt Amber wants to hear the details of like your complicated family. Shockingly, Amber responded with all families are complicated and went on to explain that her husband is a recovering alcoholic who had a sponsor at the same facility that Jennifer's sister did. And that she had also been recently divorced, went to a holiday party, and in walked her ex-husband with another man. 
Tiffany was really taken back a that Jennifer had shared her holiday plans that surrounded rehab facilities and to learn that Amber has been recently divorced and that her kids had been exposed to in quotes, the gay thing during the holiday party. And Tiffany actually asked Amber how she explained the gay thing to her kids. And Amber told her that her husband's younger brother is also gay. And they're the ones who babysit Amber's children when needed. So the meeting concludes and Jennifer leaves the conversation feeling a lot closer to Amber because they were able to connect on the rehab facility front. And then Tiffany leaves the conversation not understanding why Jennifer brings up her family situation so often and doesn't like Amber for having already been married, divorced, and for exposing her kids to the gay agenda. So again, not great for the relationship between Jennifer and Tiffany. And this is where things between them really distance and their interactions were solely focused on the kids from this point forward. So after the carnival coffee conversation, Jennifer and Amber became very close. And so they would still include Tiffany to do like activities, but Tiffany would decline time and time again. So six months go by and something really interesting happens. So Jennifer gets a call from Tiffany and Jennifer can barely hear because she's crying so hard. So Jennifer heads across the street because they're neighbors and Tiffany is just like uncontrollably sobbing. She's sobbing because her life is falling apart is how she describes it. Tiffany explains to Jennifer that her life's a mess. Her marriage is falling apart. She doesn't know her father. Her mother doesn't have any teeth, is extremely poor, and explains that like the life that she's living now is not the life that she grew up with. And as an added plot on the side, like Tiffany's husband doesn't like Tiffany's mother because of her current circumstances of poverty. And this is really driving a wedge between their relationship. So Tiffany laid out, she laid it all out there and came to realize that in the end, she's actually like Amber and Jennifer, just in a different way. And this was a huge moment for Jennifer and Tiffany. And they ended up becoming best friends as a result of this incident. So what actually happened here? So Jennifer wasn't afraid to speak on potentially shameful events which are actual realities and very normal happenstances like alcoholism in her family. And Amber did the exact same thing. She was discussing things like alcoholism, divorce, and gay marriage. Tiffany could only play the game of pretend for so long until eventually she realized that speaking shame was better than insulating it. And Brene Brown describes insulating as creating a culture of there is an us and there is them. Those people that go to those schools, those people that drive those types of cars, those people that work out at that type of gym or have those types of problems. You have to remember the passed out mother and the carpool line. This is a prime example of Tiffany playing the otherness game. A line that resonated with me is we are all those people, and the truth is we are the others. So Tiffany couldn't accept the otherness in her friends because she was denying it so drastically in her own life. Brene provides a list of otherness and the others in quotes fall into these categories. Addiction, which surrounds alcohol, drug, food, sex, and relationships. 
any mental health diagnosis surrounding depression, anxiety, eating disorders, bipolar disorders, and attention deficit. Any stigmatized illness like STDs, obesity, or HIV and AIDS. Domestic violence can be physical, emotional, or verbal. Sexual assault, which would be rape, marital rape, date rape, child abuse, suicide, violent death, criminal activity or incarceration, serious debt or bankruptcy, abortion, non-mainstream religious beliefs, poverty, low education attainment, and divorce. So I'd find it hard to believe that you don't find yourself on this list at least once. And I'm on here multiple times, so consider me one of the others. And Brene sheds light on this list to show that like the others cover issues that are far and wide. Brene's story example between Jennifer and Tiffany is so powerful. And really, what I really love about Brene's work is that she uses the power of real-life interviews to drive home her message, giving shame, empathy, and courage the center stage to be defined and learned. We love real-time examples, and this one from a book like painted shame in a new light for me, and I'm really in love with all things Brene Brown and all that she does through her research. And there are conversations around shame where you need to find a safe space to speak on it. I hear this point of view, but I think that if it feels right, you should just go ahead and share your story. So you should fully keep in mind that your story might not land with the ears you're sharing it with. But that just means that that person isn't ready to connect and might not be the person to show empathy. Sharing, some, sharing something is as equally vulnerable for the person telling the story as it is for the person hearing the story. And Brene Brown speaks on identifying a connection network, which I really love. I think everybody needs one. and I feel like for the most part, everybody does have one. And I definitely believe that you should find that network where you can share your shame rather than insulate it. However. Sharing really has no limits. And again, like if it feels right, just go ahead and share right away. And if it's not received well, you've just now identified that that person you're speaking to isn't somebody that should fall into your connection network. And connection networks have no limits. Like they can be one person, two people, five people, 10 people. It's going to vary from person to person. But a connection network can literally consist of one individual. If that's all that you feel that you need to make sure that you're in, you're sharing rather than insulating. Here are some final thoughts on shame. And I feel like these are some noteworthy takeaways from Brene Brown's work and also uh, the story that was shared from chapter five. So I've also learned these things through life coaching. Shame is a heavy topic that we discuss. And by heavy, I mean, it's just very detailed. So Number one being that it lingers. Many times people will forget a particular circumstance. However, if it happened to you, you may find that it's spiraling over and over and over again in your head. So they'll absolutely forget it, but you for sure won't. And that's just you sort of beating yourself up about it. And I always try to remember this because it lessens the effects of shame. So if you believe something is humiliating, generally other people don't remember it like that. And if they do, I still wouldn't give it too much thought. Number two, the sentences in your mind are the shame driver. So we call those thoughts and thoughts are those little phrases that are really feeding the shame that you have going in in your mind and in your feelings. So 
don't let your thoughts fuel a minor situation into something that turns into like a massive shame game in your head. So tap into that connection network or take a moment just to really feel the shame you're feeling and hopefully it will subside or have a lesser effect on you. Feel your feelings when it comes to shame. And for me, feeling shame takes a little bit more effort and thought work. Again, I mentioned like when it comes to heavy shame, it's I'm writing it down in my gratitude journal because I feel like I do recognize repeated behaviors when it does come to shame. And shame really does like to live in the past. So what's done is done and the event's over. So it's time to move on. So speaking that shame, bringing it to light and watching it wither away can help you get out of that past perspective um, and put that shame to rest. And last but not least, shame triggers generally happen for me when I'm called out by someone that I value or respect. And you might recognize that the same happens to you. Referencing back to my supervisor example, like when called out by anyone, I look at it as a moment of growth and constructive criticism. Like someone's calling me out so I can be better. And that's just what it is. I want to thank you for tuning in. Shame is a big one. Also one of my favorites. It's so identifiable when I feel it in my body and also such a major emotion that can lead to connection, empathy, and togetherness. I have linked the details of this book in the podcast notes. So I hope you take it upon yourself to learn more about this topic and speak shame whenever you can. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.